who's going to minister to us the word of God. Thank you very much. So as Deducey says, we're turning uh, to look at 1 Timothy and chapter 1 and be looking at the first 11 verses. We finished, of course, looking at Paul's letter to the letters to the Corinthians. And over the next series of weeks and months, we're going to be looking at a series of letters known commonly as the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Now, I've also thrown in Philemon into the rota because that's a book that sometimes gets neglected, and I thought we might as well cover that as well. But these pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, are so called simply because they deal with pastoral or shepherding issues relating to the early Christian churches. And Paul, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's writing to his young friend Timothy in order to encourage him and to help Timothy deal with several problems that have arisen at a place called Ephesus, where Timothy is. It's difficult to know exactly where to fit this book, First Timothy, into the chronology of what happens at Acts. One suggestion is that after the book of Acts, and if you remember, the book of Acts recounts Paul's life up into the time when he's in prison in Rome. And what probably happens after that is that Paul's released from prison, and then there's a gap that we don't really know much about, and it's probably during this period that Paul writes these letters to his friends Timothy and then to Titus to encourage them. Subsequently, Paul was imprisoned again, at which point then he was executed for his faith in the Lord Jesus. But however you manage the chronology, whether you put them earlier than that or not, doesn't matter too much because what really matters is the content of what Paul communicates to his young friend Timothy because the issues that he addresses are issues that are of great relevance to us in the 21st century as well. And that's why we're going to be considering them. And in our passage today, Paul's going to deal with the issue of false teaching that's being that's being um, perpetuated in Ephesus. And he'll come back to this issue at various points in his letters. But the key to what he's talking about, I think, is found in a little phrase in verse 10 where he talks about sound doctrine. And that word is used so much in our circles that sometimes it is so well-worn that we don't really think very much about it. But the expression simply means healthy teaching. And as we think about that, it unlocks the priorities that Paul really has, because what he is concerned about is that we distinguish between teaching which is unhealthy and false and teaching which is healthy and leads to Christian growth and maturity. And so he makes this sharp distinction. And what he's driving for then in these letters is that Timothy and the church at Ephesus would recognize what is truly healthy. What is truly for the encouragement and edification and maturity of God's people? And what Paul deals with here is a perennial issue because there are always going to be false teachers and there always have been false teachers and there always will be false teachers until the Lord comes and they promote unhealthy ideas, ideas which cause damage to believers. And just recently I 
I was hearing about a book, I think Lauren's maybe read it, a book called Becoming Free Indeed, My Story of Disentangling Faith from Fear. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's written by a lady called Ginger Vuolo. And if you don't know that name, uh, you may know, if you watch TV at all, of a TV series that was very popular a few years ago called 19 Kids and Counting. I don't know if anybody's heard of it, maybe very few people, have, some people have heard of it. Anyway, it's one of these very popular US TV shows that made its way across the Atlantic to us. Focusing on this family, which has got lots and lots of children, 19 kids, it changed names over the course of the years until eventually they ended up with 19 kids and followed their daily lives. Uh, Ginger was one of those children and she t talks about her upbringing uh, and how she was brought up in this very strict family that followed the teachings of a chap called Bill Gothard. Bill Gothard's still knocking about and runs an organisation called the Institute in Basic Life Principles. And every year, he would, uh, or more than that, he would organise these seminars and thousands of people would flock to these seminars in order to understand what are these basic life principles that, are in order, that we need to know in order to give us a successful, flourishing life. And, and he based a lot of these principles on what he understood from the Bible. And the basic idea that he taught was that there's these different spheres of authority, umbrellas of authority. And, and if you're under this umbrella of authority, whether that's your husband or your father or some other kind of authority, then you live under God's protection. But if you step outside that, then you open yourself to demonic attack, and whether that's psychological um, problems or physical health problems, you would open yourself to all kinds of demonic attack. And the thing about it was that some of the things that Bill Gothard was saying actually made some sense, that they weren't completely wrong, and I, I guess that's the thing about false teaching, that it's never completely wrong, because if it was completely wrong, then no one would actually buy it. It's got to gain some traction by saying some things, which are probably true in some sense. At any rate, these basic principles got fleshed out by Bill Gothard in very, very specific ways. And there was a whole list of rules and regulations about what you could wear, what you couldn't wear, how you would manage relationships, dating relationships, and how it should actually be courtship and so on, and, and how um, children should actually be educated and they should only be home educated, and, and all of these different details about how people are supposed to live their lives. Again, some merit to some of those ideas. But the point of what he was saying was that you had to do these things if you actually wanted to enjoy God's blessing and success in your life. And it became suffocating for people. So much fear was built into that, that they were constantly living in fear that if they didn't do something right, then they were stepping outside God's blessing and protection. And if something went wrong, then they were starting to pry into their lives, trying to understand what went wrong, what was I not doing right? And so the, this book, Becoming Free Indeed, is Ginger's story of how she got married and her husband and her began to read the scriptures and understand truly the grace of God. How that God doesn't approach us on the basis of, you know, following this long list of man-made rules. That actually God sets us free and his grace is given to us freely as a gift. And so she talks about the, the damaging effects that that teaching had in her life. And I think the reason why I'm telling that is because this is why healthy teaching is so important, because unhealthy teaching has serious spiritual implications in people's lives and psychological implications, emotional implications. And unhealthy teaching is unhealthy precisely because it causes so much damage. And that's why Paul's concerned that people know what's true so that they can enjoy the health and flourishing that comes when they know God's truth.
So we're going to read together these first 11 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1 and hear what Paul has to say to his friend Timothy through the Holy Spirit. And he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine, that's the healthy teaching, that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And this is God's word to us this morning. What Paul stresses then in this passage are the characteristics of healthy teaching. And so in verses 1 and 2, he lays down the fact that healthy teaching is teaching which conforms to apostolic teaching. Paul emphasizes that he's an apostle sent and commissioned by Jesus Christ. Healthy teaching must conform to that. Then in verses 3 through to 7, he stresses that healthy teaching always has to oppose unhealthy teaching because error damages people and healthy teaching has to correct them. And then in verses 8 through 11, Paul emphasizes that healthy teaching is teaching which keeps its focus on the gospel and doesn't get waylaid into following rules, but is focused on the gospel and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to think about each of those sections as we think about what Paul has to say to us. Firstly, then, he stresses in the first couple of verses that healthy teaching is apostolic teaching. It conforms to what the apostles say. Now, what happens in first century letters is that when you start your letter, you indicate who is actually speaking. Normally, when we write letters nowadays, we put our name and greeting at the end. Love Paul, or something like that there. But in those days, I think it was far more sensible because they would indicate up front who was actually speaking because that's the first thing that you actually want to know, who's talking to me. And so Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. When you read that, you might think he's trying to flaunt his credentials here, but he's not trying to flaunt his credentials uh, as if he's just throwing his you know, academic qualifications at the end, like some people like to do. Rather, he's drawing attention to the fact that he has been given a unique position by Jesus Christ, 
And as an apostle, he has unique authority. He's going to talk later in this chapter about how this was an act of pure grace on God's part. He didn't deserve to become an apostle, yet that is what he's been appointed to be. And this is by the command of God, as he says in verse 1. The word apostle, as many of us know, is simply the word that means a sent one. That he's been sent by somebody else. He's been commissioned by Jesus Christ. And thus Christ has delegated authority to Paul and to the other apostles. Having gone away to heaven, he has commissioned the apostles to be the ones to spread the message about Jesus Christ throughout the world and tell people about what he has done. And because Paul was commissioned by Jesus Christ, Paul was aware that he spoke on behalf of Jesus Christ and he spoke about Jesus Christ as well. And that's why he says in verse 1 that Christ Jesus is our hope. Now in Paul's thinking, a hope isn't some vague, uncertain hope for the future, but it's a confident expectation of all that's laid up ahead of us. And our confident expectation is bound up with Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who has secured our future and he is the one that we are waiting for. Our future is wrapped up with Jesus Christ, the one that we're waiting for. But more than that, all of the blessings that we experience in the present are wrapped up with Jesus Christ as well. And so in verse 2, he prays that Timothy will experience grace, mercy, and, or grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Hope for the future, grace, mercy, and peace for the present. This is what Paul, Paul prays for that Timothy would experience. And all of it comes through God the Father and Jesus Christ. And what Paul's establishing in these first two verses is that this authority that he has in communicating true and healthy teaching is being given to him by Jesus Christ and that it revolves around the person of Jesus Christ himself. And as soon as Jesus Christ stops being the focus of the apostolic teaching, then it's teaching that's left the beaten track. And Paul uses this authority that he has as an apostle not to promote himself or his own ideas, but to focus our attention on Jesus Christ himself. Now, I'm sure that over the past week we'll all have heard about Dominic Rabb, the deputy prime minister who had to resign over bullying allegations. One of the issues that made Dominic Rabb very angry was the fact that the UK ambassador to Spain exceeded his remit in promising the Spanish government things that he didn't have the authority to promise. And so there was a bit of controversy over Gibraltar, which is some kind of UK colony. And the UK ambassador to Spain told the Spanish government that they could permanently station Spanish troops there. He didn't have authority to say that. And when Dominic Rabb got wind of this, then it made him very angry. Anyway, it's not my job to think about whether or not uh, Rab was right in being angry or not, or how he responded appropriately. The point is that an ambassador has an authority which is delegated to them, whereby they can speak the position of the government that they represent and advocate for the interests of the government that they represent, but they cannot just make up policies by themselves. That's not an authority that they actually have. And similarly, when we think about apostles, they have this kind of ambassadorial function whereby they speak on behalf of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't just invent stuff off their own bat 
come up with new ideas that they think are good ideas, but they speak as those who have been delegated authority on behalf of Jesus Christ himself. And so at the end of verse 11, Paul speaks about this gospel, this good news that has been entrusted to him. And so when he speaks, when he communicates, he's speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ himself. Now, at first glance, that doesn't seem to be a particularly important issue for us today. Why should that concern us? But I think it is something which is enormously significant. Because sometimes people read the New Testament and they'll pay attention to the words of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels and treat those as very significant and talk about what Jesus said and Jesus didn't say. But when it comes to the Apostle Paul and other writers of the New Testament, then they'll say, oh, that's Paul, isn't it? He's being so so racist, so misogynist or whatever else. And they write Paul off and say that he's somebody that we shouldn't really be concerned about. I read one commentator recently, and he was talking about a particularly difficult passage by Paul, and he said, and I disagree with this, but this is what he says, the question we must ask then as we wrestle with this text is whether or not Paul's directives are in fact persuasive in their own terms, and if not, then Paul's argument has no weight at all. Now, that's a very sophisticated way of saying that if Paul makes sense, or if we think he makes sense, then we'll listen to him. And if we think he doesn't make sense, then we'll not listen to him at all. But it's not just academics that talk that kind of way. It's ordinary people. I'm sure you've met people and have said, you know, that's just Paul talking there. We don't need to listen to that. And my question then is, if Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, if he has been commissioned by Jesus Christ, then what gives us the authority to say that we don't have to listen to him. Because Paul has a unique authority, the other apostles have unique authority to give us the message from the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so when Paul speaks, he speaks with the authority of the risen Lord. And that means that when we read the words of the apostles, they're just as significant as the words of the Lord Jesus in the gospels themselves. And all scripture is given to us by God and is to be received with equal reverence. And so... We make that first basic point that healthy teaching is teaching which is grounded on what the Lord Jesus has said and what the apostles have told us in communicating the message of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we want to be healthy as Christian disciples, then we need to be consciously in conformity with the apostolic message. But if the apostles then were entrusted with this message to share faithfully, they equally had a responsibility to refute false teaching. And a key characteristic then of healthy teaching is that it opposes false and unhealthy teaching. And that's what Paul then stresses in verses 3 through to 7. And so he writes in verse 3, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false teachings any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, I'm not exactly sure what these false teachers were really saying, because Paul doesn't tell us exactly what they were saying, and I guess it's not terribly important the exact points they were making. At any rate, they're coming up with these myths, these deceptive stories, to try and create some some speculations around what happened probably in the Old Testament. Perhaps they were taking characters like Noah or Moses and spinning off interesting stories about their lives. And when you look at various other first and second century documents, that's exactly what some people were doing. And so you'll find all kinds of interesting stories of Old Testament figures. 
and they're purely speculative. These are the kinds of myths. Uh, Paul's concern in verse 4 is that such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And so the problem with such teachings is that they raise all kinds of questions. They're not grounded in what God has actually said. He says that they also um, engage in discussion about endless genealogies. Perhaps what they were doing was taking some of the genealogical passages of the Old Testament, those long lists of names that you find in, in Genesis, for example, and First and Second Chronicles. Maybe they were taking lists like that and trying to come up with some kind of hidden meanings behind the names or behind the patterns. At any rate, again, Paul's concern is the same. It's speculation. It's not encouraging people to simply rely on what God has said in his word. It's encouraging people to come up with all kinds of interesting ideas which may or may not have been the case. And it's not what God is actually wanting. Paul then explains that he insists on teaching based on faith rather than speculation because he wants to promote love. And so he says in verse 5, the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. His point is that healthy Christian teaching is teaching which produces love in its hearers, love for God and love for others around us as well. And after all, this is what the Lord Jesus said was what we should be aiming towards, to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and to love our neighbours as ourselves. And so this becomes the sum, the goal of Christian teaching, that we would love God and love one another. And Paul's point is that this love doesn't come through speculation. It doesn't come through some kind of specialist knowledge that you acquire through secret codes or, or secret ideas. It comes through a heart that has been cleansed, a pure heart, a heart that has been cleansed by God's grace, a conscience that is good, that knows that we are in the will of God and doing what pleases him. And a faith that isn't hypocritical, but a faith that is sincere and see, sincerely leans on God and what he says in his word. And Paul's probably insinuating that these false teachers are the exact opposite of this. They don't have cleansed hearts. They don't have an unhypocritical, sincere faith. They're hypocrites. They claim to be seeking after God, but actually... They're just interested in promoting their own speculative ideas. And so Paul sums this up in verse 6 when he says that it's vain talk, empty, meaningless talk, because they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about. These points that Paul makes here are really important for us today. Because, granted, we don't have people going about speculating about myths or endless genealogies in the Old Testament, but we do have to think about the principles that Paul lays down here. That teachings that are speculative are not healthy because they don't promote a simple confidence in God's word. And there are many teachers, and they do try to promote all kinds of secret Bible codes and secret meanings that they've come up with, you know, calculating numbers behind different Hebrew words and so on. If you go onto the internet and search for some stuff, you'll come up with some endless reams of nonsense. And Paul's concern with all of that, it is pure speculation. 
It doesn't lead us to read God's word and simply believe it and embrace it as God's message to us, but causes us to just speculate about nonsense. Similarly, Paul, he condemns teaching which doesn't produce love, because the the outcome of healthy teaching is that we love God and love one another, and unhealthy teaching then produces the opposite of that and causes all kinds of friction between people. Granted, there is a case some there are cases sometimes when true teaching is taught in an unhealthy way that promotes animosity and doesn't produce love. And so in cases like that, I do think it's important that we distinguish between something that might be true that's taught in a divisive way from something which is just not true and and can never be redeemed in any way at all. At any rate, Paul's concern is the same, that something is unhealthy if it's not producing love amongst God's people. And here in our teaching invention, we need to make sure that we are teaching in such a way that we are facilitating love for God and love for one another through what we are saying, because otherwise it's unhealthy. And I think that warnings like this are really important for us today, because for the vast majority of us, we will not just get our teaching here at Bensham. We will get teaching from other sources on the internet or through the radio or TV or books. And I think that's a really good thing. I rejoice that there's such a plethora of wisdom available for us uh, as Christians that can help us to grow. There's so much that's available. But equally so, there's so much out there that's really unhealthy. The other day I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was grieving over the fact that a couple who were friends of his, who had recently become believers, had got sucked into some teaching on YouTube that was telling them to, to cut themselves off from other Christians and to devote themselves to following Jewish laws. And that was the way that they should faithfully live as Christians. And this caused this couple then to cut themselves off from my friend. And he was very upset by this because he was enjoying the way that they were growing spiritually as Christians. And then they suddenly get derailed by some teaching which wasn't promoting love but was promoting elitism, which was promoting speculation. And I wonder if, if that couple had seriously considered Paul's warnings here, would they have weighed that teaching differently that they heard and thought more carefully about whether or not it was actually faithful to God's word? And I think this then is something which is really important for us, that as we listen to things, whether that's on the internet, radio, TV, or books, that we think to ourselves, what's this doing? What's it based on? Is it based on a simple confidence in God's word? Or is it speculative? Is it just making stuff up that can't be clearly seen in God's word? Does it produce love in my life? Or is it making me feel like I'm better than everybody else and I'm just going to cut myself off from everybody else? Because if that's what it's doing, then it's not a mark of healthy teaching. But Paul's biggest concern about this false teaching in Ephesus was that it really detracted from the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Because instead of focusing on the good news of how we are accepted by God through grace, through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, these teachers had been telling everyone that they needed to focus on God's Old Testament instructions, God's Old Testament law. 
And again, I don't quite know what they're saying here. I don't know whether they're saying that you need to keep these instructions in order to be put right with God, in order to be saved, or whether they were simply saying you need to keep these instructions in order to be a mature, faithful Christian. At any rate, they are so focused on this Old Testament instruction, God's instructions, good instructions, that they forget the gospel. And they forget all that Jesus Christ has done. And Paul then has to clarify the proper function of the Old Testament law. Because he doesn't want to suggest that any part of scripture is irrelevant. Or that any part of scripture is not good. It has to be understood in the purpose for which it has been given. And so that's why he then goes on to say in verse 8. We know that the law, that's God's instructions in the Old Testament, is good if one uses it lawfully or properly. And he clarifies, we know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. In other words, the law highlights the sin in our lives. It highlights where we've gone wrong in our lives, but it can never change us. It can never fix the problem with our lives. And until there is a change in our lives, all that the law can do is just keep on telling us where we've gone wrong. It's the same with all kinds of things in life. You can tell people how bad smoking is or how bad eating sugary food is. But if you just love Krispy Kreme donuts or if you just love eating sweet cakes, then you're never going to change. There has to be a change of what you love, what you really want, in order for the change to actually occur. So simply telling someone that something's bad isn't going to fix the problem. And this then is the way that Scripture functions in giving us instructions primarily in the Old Testament. It tells us, look, you're wrong here. You're sinful. You're disobeying God. This is going to, this is going to condemn you. This is going to ruin you, but it doesn't actually change us. And Paul says that the purpose of the law is not for people whose lives have already been changed, the righteous, but it's for sinners. It's for people whose lives are broken that need to see where they've gone wrong. But before Paul highlights how wonderful the gospel is in fixing the problem of our sin, he clarifies the people that need the work of the law in their lives. And I wonder if he's here insinuating that these false teachers, while they might be promoting the law for all of its wonders, whether they've actually applied it to themselves, because maybe they find marks of these characteristics in their lives. And so he lists a list of people whose lives have been characterized by various kinds of sins. And if I had time, I would go through each of these sins and clarify them for us. I don't have time, but Paul's descriptions, I think, are fairly clear. He deals with things like sexual immorality, homosexual acts, and slavery. And there is a perennial temptation to say that this is just Paul's cultural blinders. That if Paul knew what we knew now, then actually he wouldn't condemn these things. But Paul is faithfully representing God's will for all people at all time. And we need to, to take this as apostolic teaching. This is what the law condemns. This is what God condemns. But the reason why Paul highlights them is not to have a big digression into the nature of sin, which would be helpful. But the reason why he highlights these is to highlight that these are the kinds of people that need to hear 
where they're broken, where they've gone wrong, so that they might see their need of the gospel. But it doesn't change them, because what they need is the gospel. And in verse 11, he highlights that the law exposes the sins that are contrary to the healthy teaching, the sound doctrine, that conforms to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So what he's saying is what we really need to change us, what we really need for Christian maturity, is this gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And the thing that the false teachers had missed is the very thing that needs to be kept central in Christian teaching, if it is ever to be healthy. Well, why is it so important? Paul says that it's a gospel message. We know that word, it just means good news. And the gospel, we must never forget, is good news. It tells us of a God who doesn't come to condemn us. It tells us of a God who, in free grace, sent his son to bear our guilt on the cross and set us free from the sentence that would have ruined us eternally. It tells us of a God who approaches us not on the basis that we've managed to fix up our lives and get everything in order, but a God who approaches us because he loves us and he wants to cleanse us. It tells, Paul says that this is the good news about the glory of the blessed God. This word glory, it simply means God's splendor, God's greatness. All that is good about God is his glory. And so what we discover when we meet God in the gospel is this God who is supremely wonderful and splendid precisely because he laid down his life for us on the cross that we might live. And there is no greater glory than a saviour who would die for us in such a way. And he says it's the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That word just means happy. He is the joyful and happy God. We don't come and meet a God who is a frowning disciplinarian, whose one interest is to make sure that we do everything in order, or otherwise he's going to be really ticked off at us. But we come and meet a God who is supremely joyful and his interest is to reconcile us to himself, to cleanse us so that we would enter into his joy, the joy of communion with him and the joy of all the blessings that he dispenses. And Paul's point is that only this good news of the glory of the happy God can save us and can change us. And when we come to know this God, who loves us in this way, it changes us. When we see the depth of God's love for us, it changes our hearts so that we realize that pursuing our own self-interest in sin is never a good thing, but that the God who loves us and would do everything for us is the God who is worth following, who is worth obeying, and who is worth pleasing. And God then gives us his Holy Spirit to produce this change in our lives. And so we discover through the gospel that while the law might condemn us and tell us where we've gone wrong, only the good news can set us free and changes us. And Paul gets annoyed at these false teachers precisely because they had displaced their focus on the good news about what God has done for us. Fast forward to the present day, the problem here at Ephesus hasn't gone away. 
the problem of false teaching. Unhealthy teaching is the same. And I mentioned at the start Bill Gothard and his unhealthy teachings, his basic life principles that would guarantee success in your life if only you would put them into practice. And part of the falsity of such claims is that it imagines God as kind of like a cosmic trader. That he isn't there for a genuine relationship. He's there to make an exchange with you. And if you get enough currency by doing enough good things, by keeping all the rules right, then he will dispense blessing to you. If you give him enough, then he'll give you some back. But that's not the God that we meet in the gospel, who comes to us when we're bankrupt, who comes to us when we have got nothing to give and gives us everything. The God who comes to us in every failure that we go through and isn't there to dispense judgment and anger, but is there to dispense grace and restoration and healing and forgiveness. And that's why unhealthy teaching is so detrimental because it undermines the good news of a God who receives sinners and who changes them and transforms them by his grace. And so the law of God is good, it shows us where we've gone wrong, but can never produce the transformation that we need. And that's where Paul leaves us today. Next week, uh, we'll be looking at how Paul's own experience was one of being transformed by the gospel. He knew the law inside out. But when he met the man Christ Jesus on the Damascus Road, when he met him, risen and glorified, speaking to him, Paul is overwhelmed by the grace and kindness that God has shown towards him in Jesus Christ. And for him then, protecting true and healthy teaching and guarding against false teaching, it's never just a matter of holding fast to traditions just because that's what we've always been taught. For him, it's a matter of the life-transforming reality of meeting Jesus Christ. And if we get away from that, then we've lost everything. And that's why Paul is so eager that Timothy guards this deposit that's been entrusted to him and guards against this false teaching because by doing so, he will maintain a clear focus on Jesus Christ and what he has done for sinners. So we look forward then to hearing what we have to learn next week from the Apostle Paul. But for today, we'll leave it there and close in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the grace that meets us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice from the very start of our meeting over that story of the, the prodigal son, or better still, the loving father who comes to meet the prodigal son. Uh, we thank you that in that story, the Lord Jesus portrayed you as the one who loved to welcome the broken and to transform them by cleansing them, forgiving them, and making them new. Thank you, Father, that that's been our experience. Thank you that even this morning we've been rejoicing in all that the Lord Jesus has done for us. And so, Father, we pray that our lives would continue to be transformed by this reality of how good you are towards us, so that we would never lapse into thinking that that our relationship with you is based on just doing all the right things, but we'd realize that this is a relationship of pure grace that we could never deserve or earn, a relationship that allows us to enter into your joy, that allows us to enter into your blessedness, 
simply because the Lord Jesus loved us and laid down his life for us on the cross. So for this, we give you thanks and ask that we would carry the joy of this through the remainder of this week as we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus himself.